What they show us is this idea, idea of a fluid identity, a transatlantic identity. Um, the Piats come to Ireland initially, JJ and Sarah, as Americans. They encounter Irish uh, culture and Irish identity. This is Professor Elizabeth Ranker. It is Monday, August 23rd, 2021. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And I have the great pleasure today of speaking with Professor Bernadette Whelan, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History, University of Limerick. And she is speaking to us from Limerick City in the Republic of Ireland this morning. Professor Whelan's scholarly expertise includes extensive work on American-Irish diplomatic relations. And in fact, she has a new book out in 2021, congratulations, Professor Whelan, called De Valara and Roosevelt, Irish and American Diplomacy in Times of Crisis, 1932 to 1939, out from Cambridge University Press. Professor Whelan is also an historian of women's history and is currently writing a history of Irish First Ladies. She's a past president of the Women's History Association of Ireland and is a member of the Royal Irish Academy. Now, those of you who are new to our series or who have been listening to the other interviews will be interested to know that two of Professor Whelan's publications have made a significant impact on Piat studies. In 2010, she published a book called American Government in Ireland, a history of the US Consular Service, 1790 to 1913. And those of you who perhaps have not learned that much about the Piat's lives yet will wanna make immediately the connection between that book and the fact that JJ Piat, Sarah's husband, uh, was employed as the U.S. Consul to Cork beginning in 1882. And we're gonna talk about his job today. Professor Whelan is our world expert on J.J. Uh, Piat's role as U.S. Consul. Really, she's the person in the world we can talk to about that topic. So that's gonna to be very interesting today. And also in 2013, she published an extremely important article on the Piat's in Queenstown. Um, and Professor Whelan, I'm going to ask you to talk about the changing names and terms for some of these places that we're discussing. They can be confusing to people who are learning about it for the first time. She published this article um, in New Hibernia Review, specifically talking about Sarah and JJ and their family living as um, Americans in Queenstown in the late 19th century. And of course, that takes us into a lot of topics related to uh, Professor Whelan's expertise on um, not only the history of the US Consular Service, but what's going on in Ireland at this point in time. What does Sarah and JJ step into when they go there about, as people who really don't know that much about Ireland? Um, so anyway, I'm really excited about the chance to have this talk today. and. Uh, Bernadette, I'm going to ask you if you would say a few words about what brought you to be working on J.J. Piat and that led you also to thinking about Sarah as his wife. Well, first of all, I want to thank you very much, Professor Renker, for inviting me to talk to you today and talk to your audience, who I understand many of whom might be students, and I'm really delighted to be able to share uh, my information and knowledge um, with them. Uh, I think your project is wonderful. Uh, as I said, I was involved with women's history for a long time, and obviously it's a key theme in my work. Um, and one of the things I was involved in was what was called the Women's History Project, where we were also trying to retrieve lost figures, particularly female figures, in the past. Um, so to be contacted by you um, really was a great joy to me, um, as we can now try and move on a little bit and learn a little bit more about Sarah. So to come to your question, um, as you mentioned, I'm a historian of um, diplomacy. 
and in particular of American-Irish diplomatic relations. What has always interested me is the place of Ireland in US foreign policy. Um, there's been a, a major theme from the scholarship that existing scholarship uh, about that would be that Ireland has a special place in US foreign policy. Um, and my thesis throughout my whole academic career, which really perhaps doesn't say much for it, <laughs> is um, centers on uh, examining that, how special was that relationship in particular. So my first book was, which was based on my doctorate, was based on what was the, the Marshall Plan, which you'd know very, your, your, your audience would be very familiar with this, the post-war recovery program, which the Americans sponsored um, to deal with and try and re recover um, and rehabilitate the European economy after uh, the Second World War. Um, from that, then, I decided to go backwards uh, in time in terms of chronology. And the work that you referred to earlier, um, which was a history of the US consular service, that came my way as a topic really because I had engaged with and found um, a lot of, a whole run of consular material. The US uh, Foreign Service, as it's known today, consists of diplomats and uh, consisted at the time of diplomats and consular officers. And we are much more familiar with the diplomats than we are of the consular officers, except perhaps when we lose our passports and they're the first person that one goes looking to, to have it uh, replaced. Um, but the, so when I was looking at these reports um, and I realized that they actually went back to 1790, which is a historian and your students who are there, particularly graduate students, will know the importance of finding a run of materials, a run of primary source materials. So these consular reports really traveled from 1790, particularly with those for Ireland, through to 1906. And then they pick up again in another um, format from uh, 1906, indeed, through to, you know, today almost. Um, but the ones that are accessible in the National Archives Records Administration in College Park in Maryland outside Washington um, meant that they were particularly um, exciting because one could access the whole, as I say, the whole run of them there. So while the history of the US Consular Service in Ireland might appear like a very dry topic and indeed often, often institutional history seems like that, um, and in some ways it attracts people to work on it who are of that mindset. But what also interested me from these reports was the data that was available and information about the individual consular officers. So I set out not just to document what I called American government in Ireland, but also to document the individuals who were there and to try and humanize the service um, that was being provided uh, throughout that period. So it was in that context of looking at these men and they were all men. Um, we don't have the first female appointed to the US Foreign Service until the 1920s. Um, I began then to look at more and find out more information about their own personal lives. And of course, what always interested me was that it wasn't just individuals who would travel and be appointed to Ireland, but so also would um, wives and family would travel with them. So it was in within that context, then I came across JJ Piet and his wife, Sarah, and their children. So from then, obviously, that was a small part of this larger book, so I couldn't spend too much time on it, but intrigued me enough to try and work on an article in relation to it. And of course, that's often the more exciting bit when you're interested in something like women's history, because then you can really delve into the personal side of it. And then to my great joy, I found the Piat family collection of papers, which are in Yale University. Um, visited the university and was very kindly received there um, and began to come across his letters, which there are more of, and I suspect, uh, Elizabeth, you'll know more about that. Um, but at the same time, when I began to explore other sources of material, and we can talk further about that, or I can talk about it now, um, I began to realise that there was more to be said, particularly when I discovered her reputation as one of the leading American poets. And that was particularly exciting. And I began to wonder, well, what did she do during that 10 year period? So did Ireland in any way influence um, her writings, et cetera? 
So that was really how I came upon the Piats. Um, and indeed, then looking at Irish sources, Irish based sources, was able to discover and learn a little bit more about. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's extremely interesting. And um, <clears throat> I have so many questions for you today. I think maybe I'll start with the last topic you talked about. Uh, before we delve more into the Piat's lives, because one of the things I find our audience is very interested in is how scholars go about their, essentially, I like to call it detective work. Um, I find that the general public, um, as well as scholars who don't work in archives, are all always very interested in just exactly how do you do this kind of work. Um, and of course, that kind of archival discovery process has been essential to your work. And it's also essential to mine, especially now that I'm writing Sarah's first biography, there is no other biography to stand on. And you, your work has been a tremendous help to me. Um, and, I, and I thank you for it. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you today. And one of the things we share is that both of us have gone to Yale to work in the Piat family papers. And um, what roughly, what, what year do you think you were there? Do you recall approximately? You did the article in 2013, so I'm thinking you must have been there. 2010, um, 2011 or yeah, something like okay. that. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. So, so um, I was there in, um, let's see, I was there in 2018. So you were there before me, and another person who was there before both of us is Paula Bennett, uh, Paula Burnett Bennett, and I want to mention her at, because also I see her in your footnotes, and um, I'm thinking she must be the person that you turned to when you first started thinking about Sarah as a poet, because uh, Paula Burnett Bennett's work and her selected edition of Sarah's poems, um, this was really the first entire book dedicated to recovering Sarah as a major poet. Um, and so your work, you know, uh, you, you were following on that moment when Paula Bennett's edition appeared and people in my field of 19th century American literature started saying really for the first time, this is a voice we don't know and it's a voice we need to start hearing. Um, so, so the Piat family papers, as you know, is a vast collection. And I wonder uh, roughly how, how long were you able to stay there? Well, I think the first point to be made is that I, as a historian, would always believe that I'm working and building on the work of previous historians. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, you even mentioned there about Paula Burnett Bennett's book, which was particularly useful. But, you know, one of the things that I got particularly excited about was Claire Dowler's 1936 article, ah, okay. you know, on J.J. Piat. So, yeah, okay. um, you know, that was even earlier again. Yes, um, yeah. So, um, and, okay. and that uh, when you find little nuggets like that, it confirms that there is something more to be said here. Yeah. So by the time I got to um, Yale, and I only spent a week there, but what they very kindly did was photocopy most of the uh, files for me. Great. Well, before I um, ask you to take us into some issues of context, um, you know, what's going on in Ireland when the Piats arrived there in 1882. That's something our audience really will be very interested to hear and that most Americans, I can say, never learn um, in our school system. But for now, I just want to return for a minute to what to you mentioned in Claire Dowler's thesis. Uh, this will be interesting to our audience uh, as well, because as scholars, you and I share this commitment and duty, really, to go back and comb through what have prior scholars done? Whose shoulders are we standing on and in what way? And one of the things I love about doing these interviews is getting to talk to people and say, thank you for your work. You know, it's been so important. Um, so in my area of 19th century literary studies, one of the really interesting things about the difference between Claire Dowler's master's thesis on JJ, uh, John James Piot, and what happened with Paula Burnett Bennett's edition and why it was so important is, first of all, notice that something has changed from a focus on a male writer to a focus on a female writer. Um, and that's a topic that's of interest to both of us, um, Bernadette, that shift. 
And um, JJ and Sarah were both well-known poets in their lifetimes. But in the 19th century, we're talking about a time when um, it, it, male poets received more attention. Uh, female poets were expected to write about certain topics in a certain way. Male poets had more, more room. Um, but JJ, by the time um, you get to um, later in the 20th century, JJ has fallen from view as a literary figure. He's treated as a, even Dowler says, kind of an emblematic figure of a lost era. And so what happens when uh, Larry R. Michaels and Paula Burnett Bennett and uh, Jessica Roberts and William Spengemann start saying, we have to go back to this woman poet that no one now has heard of. Um, they are reclaiming a voice that um, is, is talking about topics, calling out issues, writing with a sense of irony um, in ways that um, she didn't always get um, attention for in her own lifetime because of these, again, conventions around the woman writer. So that's one of the reasons why Sarah's voice has come back with such tremendous force uh, since the uh, greater recovery of women writers um, starting in about the 1970s. Um, so that's an interesting shift from Dowler to, to Bennett that I thought it would be worth mentioning for our audience. And now I wondered, um, Professor Whelan, could you take us into Irish history when the Piats are arriving? What is JJ's job? What's he doing there? What does he step into when he gets to Ireland? Indeed. Um, the first point I think for your audience to realize is that his arrival in Ireland is obviously to do with the um, US consular service. Um, one of the phrases often used to distinguish the consular service from the diplomatic service is that courts and ports were different places. So the diplomat was based usually in the political capital city um, where the center of power was. Um, and the uh, consular officer was based in the port. So the, by the time the Americans, uh, and it is part of state building, that every state um, in terms of having its legitimacy as a political entity recognized, its independence recognized, establishes a foreign service for itself. And the aim is to gain recognition of that state. So having um, representatives abroad was one way of doing that, because it wasn't just that JJ is sent abroad, it's that he's accepted by the host government, which in this case is the British government, to come to Ireland. And he's in a long line, as I mentioned earlier, of consular officers who first come to Ireland in 1790. But the state of the US uh, consular service from really the eight, late 18th century throughout the 19th century, is one that is poorly funded. There's no training. They're not salaried. Um, and often you have them um, in many ways, they become a derided official um, who are most associated with bribery, corruption, nefarious activities, largely because they're involved in the transactions, in monetary transactions, as we'll see. So by the time, so JJ comes to Ireland as part of that system. It's a system that's also, the consular system is also characterized by the um, spoil system, which dominated US political life. And indeed many would suggest is still there today in the sense that the, not all of the appointments, the foreign service appointments were made on the basis of merit. And the Queenstown posting is a minor posting, but they are still of use to be able to reward individuals who have in some way or other have assisted you as a president or your party um, as a political party within your state, within your county, within your town. Um, so they're used for those purposes. So somebody, somebody like JJ, who needs an income, as he does, is well connected as he, we see from a lot of the memorials that are even advertised in the newspapers. Um, I think it's the Chicago Herald that describes the literary fellas that have supported his application to become a consular officer. 
Um, but then he comes out, so he comes under the category of the spoiled system, but he also comes up because somebody had to be award, awarded a favour for him to be appointed. But then he also comes under the category of patronage, of him being his, his um, artistic life being supported um, in some way or other, which does again suggest the extent to which he was a known and accepted poet at that time. So there are the two contexts that JJ arrives into Ireland um, in uh, the early 1880s. And um, where you could ask the question, but where does the idea come into his head to become a consular officer? And as we know, his friend and mentor, William Dean Howells, had been appointed in 1861 as a result of writing a biography for our um, Lincoln. So he had been appointed to Venice. And Unfortunately for a lot of these consular officers and those who were seeking, con chasing consular posts, a lot of them thought that there was a lot of money to be made. They thought they'd be set up for life. Unfortunately for a lot of them, it didn't turn out like that. Um, and indeed, JJ, as we'll see, is one example of that. So the context that he comes to Ireland in, in the 1880s, is a consular service that is still bedeviled by these weaknesses that I mentioned earlier. But it's also, interestingly, a service that is trying to reform itself. So the first attempts at reform of the US consular service are in the 1830s. It happens again, 1856, and then again in the 1870s, when there's a complete review of the service. And there are attempts made throughout that period to try and professionalize the um, occupation, the activity as a consular officer, to provide salaries and to provide allowances. And this would be a key issue for JJ. Um, so the, and he's part of that. As a result of that, then, the officers are in turn being asked to provide more fulsome reports, as we'll see, and he's very good at that. And his reports, that's why they're so useful to historians, um, providing this outsider's view on, in this case, Ireland, in this case, Queenstown um, in the 1880s. So he, um, in terms, therefore, of this, the, the, these two themes within, big themes within, that characterize the US Foreign Service, the continuing iniquities and difficulties, and then this movement towards reform. He comes in at the kind of cusp of that, but in many ways it suits him um, because he is a reforming individual himself. Now, initially, as we know, he wanted Frankfurt on Main in Germany, which was well known as a quite, um, would be a quite wealthy sinecure to obtain. And the salary was about $7,000 a year. He doesn't get it. Instead, he gets Queenstown, where he gets a salary of $2,000. So that for him was an immediate um, problem and an immediate disappointment for him for when he comes to Ireland. Um, so that's the context to his arrival in Ireland. Okay, so... Thank you. That's extremely helpful. This is a, the kind of um, uh, granular detail about how JJ ends up there that is so useful to me and, and others who just didn't really understand how was it that JJ ended up getting appointed to Ireland. Um, now, to land in Ireland in 1882, as they do, and as you've just said, he originally didn't want to go to Queenstown. Um, I'm imagining um, them getting off the ship um, and JJ entering a uh, position of that kind. And they must have been, I'm, I'm guessing uh, here, and I'd love to hear um, you talk about this. There must have been an incredible learning curve uh, about what was going on um, politically and in terms of the everyday lives of the Irish people that JJ was kind of instantly thrown into because, and, and please, um, if, I, if I phrase this the wrong way, please correct me, but I, I believe you point out in your work that um, what was called Queenstown at the time, um, now it, it Cove, C-O-B-H for our audience, now Cove, but at the time Queenstown, um, was the major port for migrants leaving Ireland for the United States, is that right? Correct. So what, what is going on for the Irish people? What is going on? You said JJ had to be accepted as US consul had to be accepted by the government uh, of Great Britain. 
Okay, the first point to note is that unlike the 20th century and in current times, when a foreign service officer has been sent abroad, they're given a briefing document. So they're given a full in file of information about the country they're coming into. And that covers everything, economic, social, political, powerful individuals, um, political, cultural figures, etc. There was no such thing as a briefing document then, first of all. Secondly, there was no such idea of bringing somebody into the State Department to give them physically a briefing with perhaps former officers who'd been there or officers who'd been brought home from that posting. So instead, he may not even have visited the State Department in Washington. He may have just got his letter telling him that he had been, uh, he was going to be appointed, he had been accepted um, uh, by the British government and that he would be going to Queenstown, which he, it, previously called Cove, spent C-O-V-E, then Queenstown, and then it reverts to its Irish spelling, C-O-B-H, Irish language spelling um, after 1922. So um, when, he's when he's arriving in Ireland into Queenstown itself, the first thing is that Previous to that, um, consular officers would have had to go to London, where they would have been presented with an official document um, that was signed by the monarch of the day, uh, saying that he'd been accepted as a foreign service officer in uh, whatever the port was that he'd been appointed to. That had been ended. And so by the time JJ is appointed, he goes straight to Queenstown. Now, just to explain a little bit, Ireland at the time, 1880s, is part of the British Empire. The American colonies had left at the end of the 18th century. Ireland was still a part of the British Empire up to 1922. So therefore, it does not have its own government. So Irish politicians who are elected in Ireland, and they are Irish, they attend a parliament in Westminster. That meant that any appointments such as what we're talking about had to be, as I said, um, accepted by the British monarch. So the world that he's arriving into, first of all, Ireland is a colony. It doesn't have its own government. Um, and it's, but at the same time, by the 1880s, its political status is still one, is, is a one of constant upheaval because of the emergence of, once again, a, but this time a strengthening nationalist movement. And that nationalist movement emerges in the form of a literary revival, a revival of what is seen as all things Irish, which would become important to in that world that the Piats would occupy. But it would also be that that world would also encompass a movement towards achieving independence for Ireland. And it is based on two issues. One is gaining control of the land of Ireland for Irish people. And secondly, gaining control of the government of Ireland to be located within Ireland. So the 1880s is particularly important um, for that stage, that evolution of Irish nationalism. Now, the reason, well, one of the many reasons why you have this radicalization, as it can be seen, of Irish nationalism at the end of the 19th century is because of what was a major famine in Ireland, which some of your audiences may know as the Great Famine, or in Irish, the Irish language is called the Gurtha Moor, just the Irish version of Great Famine. Um, but there were many famines in Ireland. It's just that that one, which occurred between in late 1845 and going through into 1852, 53, um, that famine was hit very hard and in a very deep fashion. And one of the major consequences of that, fa of that famine was to reduce the demography, the population of Ireland from 8 million to 6 million in the matter of less than 10 years. So it's an amazing um, population decrease and a decrease in population that continues through to, would you believe, the end of the 20th century in Ireland. It's only in the last 30 years that the Irish population has begun to revive to anything like those levels. What happens to those people? Death, disease, and then also evictions because the land of Ireland is owned largely by landlords. 
many of whom are based in Ireland, what are called absentee landlords, non-resident landlords, majority of whom are based in London or in their estates throughout England or Wales or Scotland. So the population of Ireland greatly decreases in that period. Where do those people go? They go to largely the United States. Others go to Canada, they go to Australia, other parts of the British Empire in particular, where they're English speaking. Um, so the, that land, flight from the land, is a permanent and is a constant theme in the world that JJ comes into and Sarah comes into in the early 1880s. And really it has infected um, so much of the way the economy um, develops and the, the way society develops as well. But just to relate it a little bit more then to the United States, because you had these huge departures in the post-Fanning period to the United States, so many of those people are going out with strongly anti-British and a hatred for anything and all British. It is that generation then, that post-Fanning generation, who will fund the radicalization of Irish nationalism that I've talked about earlier, that JJ would come into. He comes into what's called a land war. So that world he comes into is a world of flux. It's a world of change and constant change. And he coming into Queenstown, coming into Cove, coming off the boat, may have known nothing about this or little or nothing, unless he read specific newspapers in the United States unless somebody had told him something about it. Um, so we can continue with that world he comes into in, in, in Queenstown, if you'd like, uh, Elizabeth. Can we return to the phrase you just used, land war? And would you tell, tell our audience a little bit about what that means as a term when we yeah, hear it? Yeah, indeed, yeah. As I said, the country is in flux. It's in a time of, of great change. And previous consular officers had identified for their um, officers at home and their bosses at home, the economic patterns that had developed in Ireland after the famine. So what you had was a predominance of agriculture in the majority of the uh, country, largely the south, the west and the east, and the dominance of manufacturing in the northern part of the country, centered on Belfast, and what is called London Dairy Stroke Dairy still today. So there are very few alternate sources of employment for people in Ireland. Um, and therefore, when something like the agriculture fails, what you then begin to have is a movement developing calling the, called the Irish National Land League. And the Irish National Land League is seeking improvement in the um, rights of particularly the, uh, the, the landless labour who may own a little bit of property or may want to own some property. Not just, I don't mean property in terms of acres, I mean property in terms of a small cottage and a quarter of an acre around him and his family. So what happens, what has happened by the time JJ has come is that attempts at land reform legislation to give these um, the, the landed labour, to give them a fair rent, to give them free sale, in other words, the ability to sell their cottage and their bit of land if they want to, or if they wanted to stay, fixity of tenure, that what they were on would be theirs for their lives. That legislation had failed. And so what had emerged was the Irish National Land League and Devoy and Parnell established the Land League to withhold the payment of rent. So what do landlords do if they can't get rent? They start evicting again. They then have to rely on the local police, the Royal Irish Constabulary, and Ireland is one of the most heavily militarised societies, going right into rural Ireland. There are barracks all over the place and you can still see them today. Um, and so you have constant evictions, you have violence in the countryside, you have individuals who are seen to represent the landlord, like the land agent, um, the local police officer in turn being killed. Um, and this, the country therefore is in a state of agrarian upset and constant violence when he arrives in. 
he's very insightful from the very beginning. He sees the two sides, but as we'll see, his own instincts, his sympathies are more with the landless laborer or the, the, the small tenant farmer. Yes, I have to say um, your, your book on the history of uh, the US Consular Service for me was an absolute page turner. I found it riveting. And um, some of the things you're explaining to us now are so helpful, uh, not only for people interested in these historical topics, but for those of us who are working on the piats. Um, it, it is incredibly helpful to understand what it meant that Sarah and JJ essentially get plucked out of the United States. They don't have much time. I was just rereading some of the letters um, uh, from the Piat family papers, uh, getting ready for our talk today. And you see JJ being kind of surprised that he gets the appointment. And he only has a few months to get himself to Ireland. He has to get the, he has to find a ship himself. You know, again, going back to the gut, this is not a professional job where the government's managing stuff. JJ has to get his whole family over to Ireland in a couple of months. Um, so they get plucked out of Ohio, and, and uh, there's a letter from Sarah around that time saying, I guess there's no place for us in our own country. You, it's wonderful to hear her again, um, going back to some of the ideas about women writers at the time. You can hear her in her letter. She is no shrinking violet. Um, she, you know, she's got a sarcastic, ironic, direct, hard-hitting kind of voice. And she says, I guess there's no place for us in our own country. So um, to, to imagine them landing there in the midst of this complicated history and JJ having to step into a consular position and them having to basically learn through daily life what's been going on in Ireland. And it's so interesting to hear you and, and also to read about it in great detail in your book, talk about where are JJ's sympathies? How do we tell what's evolving for him as he learns about um, Ireland, the Ireland he stepped into? And we can see similar things in Sarah's poems about Ireland. But I wanna to return to some of the things I learned from your book. And again, please um, rephrase what I've said if it doesn't sound accurate, but very, very um, illuminating for me to hear you place what you were just describing, I think you used the phrase, the liberal instincts that we hear coming from JJ after just a few months in terms of his sympathy with the Irish people and the, the landless people and the suffering people, after just a few months, when technically speaking, his allegiance is supposed to be to the British government because we're talking about a diplomatic relationship with the British government, not with the Irish people. Is, is that, does that sound roughly correct? Well, his allegiance is to the American government. Yeah, okay, all right. But as, a, so, as an American government representative, he's not supposed to side with the colonial population, is that right? Well, there is always an issue with any foreign service. Um, their concern always is that the individual turns, turns native. But at the same time, remember, it's a service that isn't that professional. Yes, right. So they're, they're not reading every report in any great detail that comes in. And in terms of the State Department bureaucracy, it really only begins to expand towards the 1890s when US foreign trade abroad is given huge support by Congress. And so the State Department itself, it doesn't have the great resources to be reading this stuff. So it's rare, unless somebody complains that uh, there would be criticism of the way of his reporting from Ireland. Usually the common complaint within the State Department is when something happens, they don't have background information. They go back looking over reports and they see they're largely culled from newspapers. JJ's reports aren't like that. JJ's reports are 10 and 12 pages. I mean, his literary prowess really comes out in them. And so therefore, um, and he's able to cover all sides. So even though I presented, you know, two little excerpts from him there that suggest perhaps that he was um, less sympathetic to one than the other, at the same time, that wouldn't have been too noticeable in a very long report, you know? Okay. I mean, one of the things where at this time he is particularly critical is what the British introduce into Ireland, the British government, in order to quell this agrarian violence is what's called the Coercion Act. And the Coercion Act meant that it gave almost kind of, 
increase the powers of police and military to arrest people, hold them without any charge. In other words, a suspended habeas corpus. And that was something that he was very, he was quite critical of, but so were other American consular officers in Ireland, particularly those based in the southern, eastern, western um, counties, less in the north, because you can already see there, um, you actually can see there within the consular officers based in um, the northern counties, but is today Northern Ireland, a greater sympathy with the northern community who, as I say, are much more of a, um, where it's much more industrial based activity and factory work is available. So for those in the south, the west and the east, um, there is an element of criticism comes through of British government policy. But this, I mean, British government policy introducing the Coercion Act, that's just one in a long line of coercive acts. Um, but eventually, um, in terms of then that world that he's living in, that political upheaval begins to calm down once there is the introduction of um, greater legislation, stronger legislation um, that covers any of the lacunae and the gaps in the previous land legislation and satisfies land uh, tenants and uh, landless labourers who are able to, to acquire land. Um, so there is a calming by the time they leave, by the early 1890s, there's a calming of activity. And the major issue that has taken over by then, which he also comments on, um, is the home rule um, uh, activity. And so side by side with that demand for land reform was a demand for home rule. And home rule at the time only meant that there would be... Um, Irish politicians, Irish elected in general elections would be based in Ireland and also in the Westminster Parliament. Um, so JJ is also reporting on that and the movement towards home rule. And this is one of the wonderful things about them being there for the 12 year period, because there are very few officials who are foreign service officials who are allowed to stay abroad for such a lengthy period of time, who see a country actually improving and progressing and moving towards some sense of stability. Now, what they're also seeing, as we'll see when we talk about their, their own personal literary circles, is that they're part of a circle that is seeking to achieve independence. Well, that would be a great topic, I think, for us to move toward now, um, the, their circles. Uh, we've talked about, you know, JJ being a US government employee, and he has certain duties, um, even though not well articulated for him uh, at this point in time. But the Piats lived full lives as human beings with all kinds of social connections. We see, um, you and I have talked about this, we see in their letters how much traveling they did. They, they traveled around the country, they visited lots of places. Um, Sarah's poems about Ireland are full of um, what you called in, in one of our earlier conversations, one-on-one, -on -one, a sense of place. She really writes about, and it was one of the things I loved about being in Ireland, going to the places she wrote poems about. And, and I understood the poems so much better once I was in those places. So they're, they're, it's not like they're just living in a small town and not going anywhere. They have full, robust lives. Um, Another thing that I think our audience wants to remember is they had a lot of children. And um, their daughter, Marion, the eldest, was born in 1862. So Marion is living her young adulthood in Ireland. She was the only daughter they had, the rest were boys, but she's a young woman in Ireland. And um, we also know from Marion's letters and things family members wrote about her, Marion was going to London. Marion, um, attended a play with William Butler Yeats. Uh, I, so this, I hope um, now, Bernadette, you can take us into this idea of their circles. Who are the people? What, what kind of a world is this that the Piats are part of? Yeah, I mean, I think the, they, they come into Cove, uh, Queenstown, which to us would seem today to be a very small village. Um, and indeed, one can wonder then, how did they integrate into these larger national political circles um, and, and wider circles? And the one of the, the strengths of being a consular officer in Ireland was the prestige and, re and respect that it was accorded. And it was from the very beginning, from when the first officer was appointed in 1790, it was seen as a very important position, not just by the British, British um, government, but then also by any Irish um, officials. Um, and indeed, so therefore, the British, the US consular officer is immediately integrated, first of all, into an administrative world, into a commercial world, 
um, and into a cultural world. And that cultural world that they, because their reputations have gone before them. Now, it takes a while for hers to come through, but certainly JJ is seen as an established poet and a poet with some reputation in the United States. But what you begin to see very quickly is a, an important figure who picks up on particularly Sarah, and that is Catherine Tynan. Catherine Tynan was a novelist, a poet, a journalist, born in County Dublin. Um, she's Catholic. Her father is quite a wealthy farmer. Uh, she'd been well educated. Um, and then she also had been a member of what was called, I mentioned earlier, the Land League. There was a Ladies' Land League who support, supported um, people who had been evicted. And that really was her major um, her major political interest lay in the nationalist movement. So she was very much regarded um, as, 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 a, as a figure, a prominent figure, you know, particularly as she got into her 20s, um, within the nationalist movement. And she herself began to, well, she was writing poetry from a very early age, um, began to publish, and began to publish in a magazine called the Irish Monthly. Now, the Irish Monthly is a magazine that was very popular. Um, its editor was a man called um, Father Russell, who was a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest, but he had extremely eclectic tastes. And so therefore he gave quite a prominent position, given the time, to Catherine Tynan and to her reviews. And she produces some really, I mean, there's a, at least a 10 page review that she produced, which is just called um, Mrs. Piat's Poems. And it's published in 1886. Now, for some of your students who are here present with us, they'll find the Irish Monthly in JSTOR. And it would be extremely useful for them to be able to read what she says about, um, uh, about Sarah's, Sarah's work. Catherine Tynan's reminiscences are online and uh, are free. And even though she misstates one of her uh, early meetings um, with the Piets, it's very clear that by 1886, she said that they had brought me a new friendship, the Piets, these American poets. Um, and she's particularly then spends quite a lot of time recalling her time in Queenstown, how she met them, um, and indeed, more importantly, how she found the household. And what's clear is that it was a household which one suspects survived on very little money. Um, the other aspect that she comments on, which is quite interesting, is that they're the two, she describes them as kind of, they're almost two very frail people, um, but that they're so, because they're so engrossed in their own literary worlds, um, and that they're constant writing bits of papers, and yet bringing up this very rambunctious and uh, uh, lively family, um, so she's, she says that initially she was a little afraid of Mrs. Piet, and I, get, I think I kind of feel that that might have been because of her reputation, um, but very quickly she, they settled in and they become firm friends. So that's, Catherine Tynan brings them into an Irish literary world. She brings them in then to the world of the Irish Monthly, and there's much more, many more reviews of Catherine and JJ's work, in, of Sarah's and JJ's work in that. They visit her in Dublin. And Catherine Tynan had set up what was almost a salon, which some of your students who know, uh, take literary, literature classes will know was a way in, through which women in particular, who were wealthy, who were patrons of the arts, were able to gather literary figures around them, usually in their own homes. Um, and it meant that they were able to had controllers, they had access to that public world without, because they were, as we know, um, unallowed largely into many of the academies. So um, the, the Piets become part of that world. Within that world then, that's where she meets the young Yates. He says to Catherine Tyner at one stage, thank you for introducing me to JJ and thank you for bringing my material to his attention. Whether anything came of that, we don't know, but I mean, it is a particularly interesting little nugget. Um, we know also part of that world was Aubrey de Vere. He's also a poet and an author. Um, he then is, it becomes, transfers, becomes, goes from Protestantism to Catholicism. So he's, in a sense, he's a very strong mind of his own. Um, but one would be able to find further material on him in a, an entry in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, which is available online. 
and JJ talks a lot about Aubrey de Vere as well. The third part of that literary world who I just would like to mention are the Sigersons. And the Sigersons are also another who become a staple within the, uh, the cultural revival and the Irish literary movement. Um, the Sigersons, Dr. Sigerson is um, a doc, medical doctor, um, quite well off, good practice in the center of Dublin. And it hits him and his family that they uh, meet with as well. And because one of the two da Sigerson daughters, there's Dora and there's Hester, um, that she and Arthur Don Piet, JJ and Sarah's son, obviously take a shine to each other. And so that becomes a courtship. Catherine Tynan brings down Hester every now and then to Queenstown, we know, um, and that relationship develops. And as we know, the couple eventually marry. And Arthur Don will become a key figure in that literary revival. Um, along with Hester and along with the Sigersons. And indeed, even today, the Sigerson family would be well known within Irish cultural circles. So the, those connections, the Tynan connection, the De Vere connection, and then the um, Sigerson connection, they become part of that literary world, which the Piats come into. And I think explain then why they want to move to Dublin and gain the Dublin consulate. In the, he, he begins lobbying for that 1888-1889, it's quite early. He's getting his father onto it. He's getting Robert Warner, his friend onto it uh, to see can he be transferred there. Um, they do get it eventually, as we know, they do get to Dublin. They only spend a few months there, but he wanted to stay on. And then he launches this major campaign in Dublin to get support from Trinity College professors and a whole, many other of the literary giants in the Irish literary world at the time to try and stay in Dublin. Yeah, that's a uh, fantastic turn in the story we talked about um, at, the, at the beginning of our discussion when he's not that thrilled to have been appointed. And, and then he, he makes a lot of effort to stay. And, and the people also, um, if I recall correctly, the people also really supported that. There were petitions and signatures to keep JJ on. Um, I Except, sorry, that's not unusual. Oh, okay. Oh, good. Thank you. That's not no, unusual. That's not unusual. Can no, you say no, a little no. bit? Can say a little bit more about that? It's important to put that in that context because otherwise, it sounds like oh, they really, especially esteemed JJ and wanted to keep him. Would you tell me more about that? No, I mean one of the ways that one of the few ways that. Um, individuals were able to exert some authority over any kind of appointment, you know, or agitate in any way for anything. You would have groups of individuals that would come together and put together petitions, oh, okay. um, testimonials. It's not unusual that there would be these testimonials and that there would be, I mean, he did it himself to get to the job in the first place. Yes, right. You know, right. and he prints yes. it in the newspapers. So, I mean, obviously those who didn't support him wouldn't have signed it, but yes, there, would, there right. were, you know, um, enough who did. Okay, great. Now, I, I'd like to ask two questions. One first is a question of definition. And then I wanted to return to a topic you cover in your book, which is where you um, help your reader, and in this reader in particular, I told you it was a, it was a page turner for me, by um, based in your very deep knowledge of this topic, putting JJ kind of in the context of other consuls in Ireland. Uh, you know, how did he compare? Um, so I want to I want to get there for a minute. So JJ, in terms of how the people felt about him, what his attitudes were toward Ireland and so on. Was he different? It's like you just said, well, it wasn't unusual that there was a petition. Was JJ unusual in any way as a consul or did they all basically have his kinds of positions? That's where I'm going. But my first question, I wanna to return to a question of terminology. You and I were able to talk about this a little bit uh, before the interview began. And it is, a, it is a, a, an issue of terminology that I think Americans really struggle with. And I would love to hear you talk about it. And that is um, the terms Irish language and Gaelic. Could you just tell us a little bit about those terms? Were they different in the 19th century than they are now? Okay. Um the first thing is that the word Gaelic, the origins of it, the root of it is the word Gael. And Gael is the Irish language for an Irish person. 
Um, and the phrase itself, Gael or Gaelic, is one that the term Gaelic in particular becomes very important towards the 1890s in the context of that um, revival of a separate Irish cultural identity, one that's separate from the anglicized world, um, you know, from, from, from the, the, anything that's to do with English speaking. Okay, and then also just to follow up to that, um, I believe in Irish schools today, the curricular subject is called Irish language, is that right? That's correct. Okay, and so is the term Irish language today in Ireland a synonym uh, for Gaelic? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. was that was the term Irish language also being used in the late nineteenth century? Yeah, or Gaelic was really the center of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have in front of me here a um, census of Ireland, nineteen eleven, for yeah. Arthur Don Piat, um, his wife Hester and their, their son, Don Piet. And what's written in here is, uh, in, in, in this specific one, is whether they are able to speak the Irish language. And some of them actually insert into it that they can speak Gaelic, some put in, they can, others, not the, the Piet, that they can speak Irish. So um, the, it's used interchangeably. Okay, all right, good, thank you. That's very helpful. Um, yeah. And uh, now, you know, I'm looking at the clock and I could keep to asking you questions for a very long time, but I realize you have a busy day and I need to let you go very soon. So I thought maybe um, to wrap up, in addition to any, any uh, concluding thoughts you might like to share with us, I just wanted to ask you to talk about the next generation of Piads, Sarah and JJ's kids. Yeah, um, I think they're a very nice bookend to this because what they show us is this Idea, idea of a fluid identity, a transatlantic identity. Um, the Piats come to Ireland initially, JJ and Sarah, as Americans. They encounter Irish uh, culture and Irish identity. Um, Arthur Don marries into a very strongly Irish stroke Gaelic uh, cultural background to the Sigersons. He marries Hester Sigerson. And then their son, um, Don, he, he then in turn, he becomes what would be seen as more Irish than the Irish themselves. He would become very Irish um, in, in the sense that his, his he's born in Ireland, his identity is Irish. Indeed, even his economic activity, he's a translator of languages and specifically documents from English into Irish, Irish into English in the um, Irish parliament. Um, and he himself developed a prominence as a, as a writer um, uh, and a strong and a, a literary figure and was well known. Um, just one of the interesting things is there's a file in the National Library of Ireland, um, which is in the Patrick Joseph McCall papers, and there's a report of expenses and subscriptions for Arthur Don Piet Monument in the, what is the National Cemetery in Dublin, uh, in Glasnevin in 1914. There's a lovely photograph, and written on the curb was, some Irish friends who loved him have jointly raised this last tribute of affection. Yes, thank you. I agree. That's an outstanding place to end. And uh, thank you so much, Professor Whelan, for, for speaking with us today and sharing your expertise. It's a thrill personally for me to get to talk to you about our shared interests. Thank you again for um, all the work you've done. And uh, we are grateful to you for participating in our interview series. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. I was honored to be asked. And I want to wish you and your students the best of luck with this work. It's extremely important in terms of retrieving um, this very important woman and her material. And um, I think what we can see, because they were in Ireland for so long, is that those Irish themes come through strongly. And we see that element of sympathy that she had, but also that she brings a completely new view of the way Ireland should be perceived abroad as well, and particularly in the United States. We could have a whole other conversation about the Irish poems, and I hope we'll have a chance to do that someday. But for now, I'm going to say thank you and goodbye, and uh, we appreciate your time today. Bye-bye. Discovering Sarah, America's Lost Great Writer, is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio with the support of the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and the Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer, 
produced by Kayla Probion and featuring the song The Heresy of Paraphrase by songwriter One Man Bo.